that we grew up in. And uh, we used that $40,000 to create our first version of the bike. And we had a container of those uh, made and it was a total disaster. And so I went back to my dad, which was a ballsy thing for me to do. And I asked him like, Hey, like, how would you like to lose 10,000 more dollars? And he, he said, you know, you've potentially already screwed up my retirement. So like, let's go for it. Hello and welcome to the Atonicast. I'm Kirsten Korosek, transportation editor at TechCrunch. Oh, and I'm Alex Roy, the founder of the Human Driving Association and um, co-founder of Johnson & Roy, the finest advisory firm in transportation. I'm Ed Niedermeyer. I am the author of Ludicrous, the Unvarnished Story of Tesla Motors. And I'm, you guys, I'm really excited for this uh, this episode our guest today, I got to hear him uh, uh, do a, an interview at, at Micromobility America that was really kind of, for me, mind-blowing. I, I don't pay a ton of attention to the e-bike space, and so we're going to be able to learn a lot more uh, about what's going on there, too, as well. Uh, but yeah, Levi Conlo from uh, from Electric Bikes, welcome. Thank you. I'm excited to be here, and uh, you know, this is my ish. I love talking about this stuff, so excited to get into it. We're really excited to have you. So, so... It's easy to ha- or it's easier to have fun as a company when things are going well, right? And and that's sort of the the thing, right? You you work hard and then you play hard. Uh, and unlike you know, not everybody in the e bike space is doing really is doing well at, at this moment. And I want to dig into that, um, like over the course of this conversation. But I kind of want to start at the beginning so we can kind of understand the roots of like how you get into the e bike space in a way that allows you to like have a fun workplace with your with your friends because again that that success comes first. So like take us to the beginning of of electric as a company. Like what was sort of the vision and 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 sort of like how do you think that's set you apart from some of the the other players in the space? Sure. So in it actually starts a bit further back in 2015, um, I was going to college and someone flew past me on a boosted board and I was like instantly captivated by it. And I totally wanted one, but it was 1500 bucks and I wasn't interested in that. So instead I had $1,500 at my disposal. I just didn't want to blow it all on one board. So what I did is I flew to China And I went to a couple different factories (laughs) to try to find one, like who makes these. And I found a company that made them and I was able to like buy like three of them. And then I flew back to the U.S. because my flight to China round trip was like 320 bucks. So it was the worst flight of your entire life, (laughs) like back next to the toilet, uh, three layovers. Like it was an awful flight, but it was super cheap. So then I bring back these boards. I kept one for myself. I sold the two other ones. And like now I had basically paid for the whole trip and paid for my board. And then I was like, ah, I could scale this up. And so I was in my dorm room just uh, OEM buying these electric skateboards for a while. I brought my one buddy uh, from college in and we kind of worked on this project. And then we eventually made our own board with our own componentry. And, you know, it was a semi-successful dorm room business like in the three years we did it we did about a million dollars in in sales but like we legit in my dorm room would have like stacks of boards inside it was like complete chaos it was awesome um so we did that but while i was in college i got a lot more into this idea of like 
transportation and like changing the way people move. And I found like certain people uh, really inspirational and the like the stories of groups like Honda or even Bosch, you know, those are just really cool stories. What, what they do because many times they just start in bikes, but then they go to all these other transportation solutions, whether it's your riding lawnmower or, you know, a jet. I, I realized electric skateboards weren't doing that simply. It was a hobby item more than anything. I was selling to 14 year old boys who were getting it for Christmas or their birthday, but they weren't actually like taking a car off the road or like using it to commute to school or work or whatever. It was just a toy. And so I kind of fell out of love with the project. Um, and it seems like there was a very evident ceiling to it. I had seen boosted boards go through all these financial challenges. And I was like, man, they raised all this money. I haven't raised any money and they can't even make it successful. You know, what? there's no way I'm going to be able to make it successful. Um, but it was a good way to pay for college and pay for all the extra shenanigans one does in college. So <laughs> it was uh, it was a lot of fun. What but, were you um, What were you studying in college while this was all going on? Presuming that you continued yeah. to go to class and everything. Yeah, yeah. My professors were pretty awesome about it because uh, I was allowed to give myself an internship, which counted towards college credits to work on my company. And so it was business entrepreneurship was my major. And then I got a master's in business leadership. I did both programs in under four years, though. Um, and I noticed like that market wasn't really growing and didn't see as much potential. So I wanted to figure out what else I could do. And I was talking to my dad and he was just begging me to do electric bikes. He said, just at least look at it and see if there's as much potential there as what you're looking for. Uh, And the reason was, was because he and my mom wanted electric bikes for themselves. And they went to the local, you know, Eric's bike shop uh, in Minnesota and they were like over three grand to get one. And so it was like huge opportunity because I was doing electric skateboards for three ninety nine, So I was like, oh, I can probably figure out a way to manufacture this, but is it is the opportunity big enough? So I did this whole big business plan to like create a case study and try to get an understanding of the, of the opportunity. And you look at all sorts of stats, you know, when I made that business plan, I actually keep it with me uh, almost at all times just to, for perspective. But, you know, at that point, under 2% of all bicycles sold in the United States were electric. And I just about at that time, the Netherlands was hitting that 50% penetration rate. And it's like, well, this could be something. Um, but the stat that really got me excited was this understanding of like joules and energy consumption in order to move a human, right? The human is actually pretty inefficient to move from point A to point B compared to other beings. And so when you look at um, the bicycle, the bicycle is the single most efficient form of transportation to get from point A to point B in terms of using joules. Um, but if you look at the most efficient form of motorized transportation, you know, it's the electric bicycle with pedal assist because you're using some human power, you're also using electric power. And so, you know, my electric car has a watt hours per mile of 300 ish depending how much fun I'm having. My electric motorcycle is about 70 watt hours per mile. Um, But my electric bike is anywhere in that 10 to 25 watt hours per mile. Um, So 
a, a significant reduction. And once I kind of, I, I love efficiency and it's probably one of the main reasons electric is so successful is that I just am always looking at opportunities for efficiency. So when I saw that, I, I couldn't not do the project anymore. So I said, uh, I closed down my electric skateboard uh, business and basically threw away all the inventory and was like, I am going after e-bikes, but I did it. So when I had like no money in the bank account, because I just like, I had completely lost love for the electric skateboards. And so I go back to my dad and I asked him like, Hey, you know, I want to do, uh, these electric bikes, you're going to love it. I'm going to make them way more affordable. You're going to be able to buy one, but it isn't going to cost you $3,000 an e-bike. It's going to cost you about $40,000 because I actually need some startup funds in order to get this thing going. And my family didn't come from wealth or anything. So he goes to Wells Fargo and takes like a home improvement line of credit off of the house, like our childhood home uh, that we grew up in. And uh, we used that $40,000 to create our first version of the bike, which was a very standard looking 700C tire, you know, commuter style. And we had a container of those uh, made and it was a total disaster. Uh, we could not sell these to save our lives. And we would price it at like $7.99 and nobody wanted them. They, you know, they were 36 volt systems. 250 watt motor. Um, but Robbie, my co-founder and I, who, who started electric e-bikes together, um, we designed it for us and we're both six feet tall. So there's no adjustability to this bike. And so it, it wasn't class three, you know, it was all these things. So like we completely missed the mark and we're sitting there trying to sell them on Craigslist, you know, Facebook marketplace. We were at like trade shows, like the Arizona home and garden show. We grinded out there for like 30 hours one weekend and didn't sell a single bike. So, um, fortunately people are very vocal of why they won't buy your product. And all you have to do is listen to them. And so they told us, Hey, I want something that can go further. I want more power. And then they had all sorts of excuses of like, ah, if I buy this and I need a bike rack in order to like transport it around. And then that kind of sent us down the rabbit hole of folding. And same thing with the, I don't want to build the bike if you ship it to me. And then it was like, all right, we're going to make this thing fully assembled. So then when it shows up, you can just jump on and ride. So then we redesigned the bike um, completely. So then I went back to my dad and I, <laughs> okay. I have to ask, like, sorry to interrupt, but your dad during this time, like in that beginning, did you, were you more excited or were you just feeling full pressure? Like, Oh shit. Like the family house is on the line potentially here. Yeah. Uh, in the early days, I'm pretty naive and like overwhelmingly optimistic about everything. So like Robbie and my dad, we're super stressed and like freaking out about everything. And I was like, guys, this is simple. All we have to do is redesign the bike to everything people told us and everything's going to get fixed. And they both wanted me to stop spending time thinking about the next iteration of the bike. And for me to just focus on, we have a container of these things right now, sell these before you move on to the next one. And I was like, no, this is, we are going in this new future. And that's what came up with electric XP. And so I went back to my dad, which was a ballsy thing for me to do. And I asked him, like, hey, 
like, how would you like to lose $10,000 more? And he, he said, you know, you've potentially already screwed up my retirement. So like, let's go for it. Um, so he then takes that out of his savings, gives it to me. And I use that to create about a dozen bikes. And then Robbie and I use some money to create our Shopify, get some photos done. And like, that was it. And we have no money for marketing and we have no money for inventory, right? So we had to launch this thing on a pre-order. And what we did is we just took 10 bikes and sent them to people on YouTube. And they they were like everything. So the very first video goes out, we went from not selling any bikes, like maybe one or two a month to the first day that video came out, uh, we sold like $30,000 that day. And then the second day we th- sold 30,000 and the fourth, fifth, sixth. And then on the seventh day, we did $120,000 that day. And so within the first 21 days of the uh, business, it was over a million dollars in pre-orders. And I had to jump on a flight, get over to Asia in order to start lining up ma- manufacturing because it's like, we just had prototypes at this time. So like this, uh, this had not materialized. So you're speaking it, to, you're speaking to Ed's uh, love of manufacturing right now. I, I, I have yeah, to ask. I know. Honestly, um, I love everything about this story. <laughs> hold on a minute. Um, so that model was the XP. Correct. Yep. That was our launch XP and we launched it at eight ninety nine, and it was kind of like a, we got a ton of attention because it was like, how on earth are these people launching it at this price? And it was pretty simple. We had no marketing costs associated with the business. And me being bullish and optimistic, I went in and assumed like, oh, we're going to be able to sell you know, at least 5,000 of these units a year, right? And so I just earmarked the anticipated cogs that I thought I would be able to reach and then built that into my model. And I said, all right, this will probably work out. And what was cool was by the time I got to China to set up manufacturing, I already had a thousand orders, like prepaid a hundred percent in full, which would then allow me to put down deposits for way more than that, because I was just using all of the money to place the orders. And so it, it, it allowed for the unit economics to work out. Um, that first year, this is 2019. And, you know, in between May 30th, 2019, and the end of the year, we sold something like almost 8,000 e-bikes. Uh, and it was all on pre-order. None of it was in stock. Every customer paid 100% in full and every sale went through our uh, Shopify website that just Robbie and I had built. And we did no additional marketing outside of those first 10 YouTubers for almost a full first year uh, because at- who, and who, wait, hang on a second. who were those YouTubers? And how did you pick them? <laughs> yeah. So what we noticed when we were trying to like sell these e-bikes is we found that a lot of the people that were interested in our e-bikes were retirees. And then we had also noticed the heavy amount of them who were RVers. And so we basically said, all right, we need to get this in front of a bunch of RV influencers. And those guys are awesome because they didn't even like charge us for um, the video or the review or something. It was just like, give me a bike. Yeah, I'll make a video on it. And like one of them, this guy, Bob Wells, he's like almost 80 and he like 
lives in his van and he's like one of the huge faces of the RV industry. And like the day he posted his video, we sold like a hundred and some bikes and it's like, yeah, this is awesome. Um, so, but what was cool is anytime we ship bikes in particular to that part of the, of the industry, you would see more and more sales come in. So like 30% of our customers would come back and buy a second bike because they were like, get one for themselves. And then they would try it out and be like, Oh, this thing's awesome. I'm going to buy one for the spouse. And then RVers, a lot of them are retired and they are like the most powerful traveling sales force in the entire world because they go to national park to state park to like, they're always on the move. So your product is always getting new exposure. Sometimes I see the, uh, the same guy in my neighborhood ride my same bike and it's like, it's just repetition, but this is constant new exposure with this traveling sales force. And the best thing about these uh, individuals is the fact that they have a lot of time on their hand. So if you stop and ask them like, Hey, what do you think of that bike? You just signed up for an hour long Ted talk because they don't have to get to work or anything. They love to talk any reason they have to talk, they will. And so they're just like the most incredible people um, to uh, have be advocates for your brand and your product. So I'm super thankful for them. So crazy thing is our first, uh, what was it? Our our first 50 million, was it 50 or $40 million in sales came without us having a um, Google ads or Facebook ads manager account even created because like we weren't even bidding on branded search. Like all of the sales were just like we shipped bikes and then YouTubers would like cover it. And then the customers would get them and be like, this is sick. And then they tell all their friends about it. And so we just had this like massive snowball effect. Oh man, it was awesome. Were you surprised by the demographic interest? I mean, it sounds like you embraced it very quickly, but was it contrary to what you thought when you started building those prototypes? So before we switched to the XP, I would say I had this um, feeling of like we designed it for Robbie and me, who at the time were both like 23 and it was sleek and it had this different look and whatever. We went for the aesthetic more than anything. It, It had to be modern and cool. And then once we talked to the customers and they were telling us why they weren't buying our first version, we were like, all right, this thing needs to be like high performance and it needs to be comfortable and it needs to be a good price. Like as long as I can check those boxes. And so like some people don't love the look of my mono tube bike, but what they do love is the performance that it delivers and the value it delivers. So it's like, you know, people will trade away from the, the, the design sometimes, though I think we've gotten significantly better with our design and aesthetic um, from the earlier days. But anyways, so we were not surprised once we went after the, once we designed the XP, we knew exactly who we were designing it for. But compared to that first prototype, like they are so far different. It's just like not even comparable. Mm. What about the RV piece? Was that, I mean, so you knew it needed to be comfortable, affordable power and like, but was the RV kind of like that you sort of stumbled into that world? No. So when we were talking to people with the first design, we could tell RVers were really into it. And so 
just the idea of having an e-bike. And so I remember talking to my aunt and uncle who are RVers and like picking their brains on like what it should look like and like how much space does it need to take up like in the folded form, like how big can it be in order to like fit in here? Because that with that part of the industry, your footprint, like your physical footprint in their home, in their space uh, is crucial. You need to take up as little room as possible because if you get too cumbersome, they just won't take you along for the ride. And so we spent a ton of time working on the folding dimensions of our product in order for it to sit or fit in a certain size of cabin underneath RVs. Cool. Yeah. Do you, so, so I don't know. I mean, to me, I think there's something fascinating going on here and, and I want to get into sort of some of the broader dynamics that's going on in the EV marketplace because, uh, and, and sort of, you know, what sets this strategy apart. I mean, one of the things off the top of my head that I just feel like I see a lot of in VC, you know, venture capital funded companies is that you kind of have to build a prototype that appeals to VCs. Which, you know, for certain kinds of products and certain kinds of market segments, that's great. They're a great test market for, for some, for certain kinds of products. For a lot of products, they're not. Like VCs are not, you know, normal people at all. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you think there's a relationship between the fact that, you know, like how you financed and, and, and started this business just on a financial level and sort of your ability to identify this market opportunity? Yeah, so – when I start, albeit I had a degree in business entrepreneurship, I wasn't a great student. So I didn't even know what you know VC really was or anything like that when we started the company. And Robbie and I had designed this product uh, to be profitable from day one. The unit economics had to economics had to make sense that every single one of these we sell, we can make money on because we were trying to build a business of like we're going to own this thing until the day we die. And like, you got, you want to own something that's not toxic and draining from you. Like it, I could never even fathom an idea of starting a business that wasn't profitable. Like to me, the math simply does not work. And so when we um, first designed it, it was like, all right, know all of our costs. And I had the experience with the electric skateboards um, prior to that. So I had better understanding of like, okay, this is what insurance is going to cost. This is what, you know, the content creation may cost, the credit card processing fees. Like I was very dialed at that point of understanding the true cogs that make up a business and then the actual cost of the product. And then add all this up, then what we sell it for has to be more than that in order for this to make sense. Like this is what we have to do. And so, um, We've seen a number of bad examples in this um, EV micromobility space, especially. Please, on tell the- us, please tell us more about those bad examples. I'd like to learn. <laughs> yeah, I, I I don't know if I'll please call do, too, no, too much. Please name names. No, it's okay. <laughs> yeah, I think it's pretty easy if you do a Google search. Type in a uh, one of Van them. Moof? Van Moof. Yeah, sure. That that's that's a good example. I think okay. I, I actually in my phone uh, just over the last. Uh, four months have seen the books or businesses or headlines even of a, a little over a dozen e-bike companies and competitors that are uh, in bankruptcy or about to enter bankruptcy and are looking for bridge loan solutions or anything like that. So here's the problem is like, this is a hard consumable product, right? This is, this is, been an industry that has been around 
for, I don't know, 15 years, 20 years. It's new to the U.S., but it's not that new to other parts of the world, right? China and Asia sells whatever, 40 million of these units a year. Uh, Europe sells 4 million units a year. Um, well, and that was at that point when I was first looking into this uh, concept. So, and the U.S. was only at a couple hundred thousand, but it's like we, we the, the product development and innovation was actually pretty far along uh, by the time 2019 came along. So um, some of these things that people were, trying to sell or innovate, it, it didn't need to be innovated because you had groups like Bosch and Shimano who can do it way better than you um, already developing these things. So I I was very confused uh, why so much VC money was coming into this space because we went the private equity route because we ran a really good business, a good profitable business that had strong growth rate uh, and still does. And I, I, I just don't know that the relationship for VC necessarily makes sense because this is a, a hard consumable and you should be pr- profitable on each product. It's not like if you get to a certain penetration rate, like it can make sense. I think we're seeing with Lime where it's like, yes, what, once you get to a certain scale, it can make sense, but that's a shared micromobility solution. If you're just selling a product uh, you should be profitable on every single one of those that you sell. Um, and so there's just a big disconnect. And, and I think what's unfortunate is a, what happens is a bunch of money gets put on the cap table and the balance sheet. And you have this new pressure to put that money to use because it, if you're not at least growing that money that they put into at a minimum of Shoot, they could have dropped it in the index fund and got 10%. So you better be growing well beyond that because they took a big bet on you. So you end up doing a lot of stupid things and you put way too much money into R&D because you want to develop something yourself, even though there's amazing partners out there who do it better than you and at a more affordable price because this is literally what their business is uh, built around. So you have those, then you tackle all these different channels you spread your company thin, your headcount gets super bloated. I, I think that's one of the biggest um, pains of, of one of my or several of my competitors. So we can use the Van Moof example. They were selling, you know, not much more than 20,000 units a year uh, at their peak. And, and let's use 2022 as an example. They ended the year with like 900 or 1,000 employees. And like last year, I sold let's say almost 150,000 units. And I had like 90 people on my team. So it's just like, why does it take so many more people to sell that much less? Or or another example is we probably sell about 50% more units than rad right now, somewhere in that range. Um, And we have a staff size one fourth the size of them. And so it's like, this is efficiency. Right. And and when you're inefficient, it goes two ways, goes to the bottom line or it goes to MSRP. And so that is why our price is able to be so much better than everybody else's. But it's also why we are able to actually run a profitable business. And so 
Um, I think there's just a lot of pressure that comes with that type of capital because it's not always prioritizing building a big or excuse me, a strong foundational business. And that is the only thing that we've been interested in. So we found awesome partners, Bertram Capital, um, who got that vision from the very beginning. And we've only grown the company when we can afford to grow the company, like as it becomes available. So as we scale up and we get additional savings and cogs because we scaled up, then we can use some of the savings that we got to fuel more growth, right? But the standard and expectation on this business has basically stayed flat on where our profitability has to sit over the last, they've been invested into us for three years now. So we've virtually made no compromises in our profitability, but we're now, I don't know, six times the size of six, seven times the size of the business that they originally invested into. But for, for members of the audience who can't see Edward Niedermeyer's face right now, he's salivating like dri- dribbles of excitement at capitalism functioning well. And he's already uh, yeah. on, on the whiteboard drafting his next book. What yeah. if electric was running Tesla? I, I know where this is going. <laughs> so no, but like th- there is something really fascinating about like I I feel like so many pieces of how you're building this company like remind me so much of of, of actually like Hen- Henry Ford uh, and 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 the Ford Motor Company in the old days in terms of you know what is the most pragmatic way to get people mobility right starting with that building profitable businesses but then one of the pieces uh, so I I, I this this conversation is happening because I, I got to listen to an interview of yours at, at Micromobility America. And one of the things you said there that was really fascinating, like my mind was already blown when you you know said some of the things you've, you've just said, but but you actually cap your profit margin too. Like you, you once you hit a certain yeah. level of profitability, you go and then, well, tell, tell us what you do, right? Because you, you, every, sure. every unit has to be profitable, but it can't be too profitable. If you get too profitable, what's your philosophy around that? Yeah, so we call it the flywheel. It's electric flywheel, and this is why we perform better than everyone else. Is we have a floor and we have a ceiling to how much money we're willing to make within this business, essentially. Uh, and so, as we get bigger, uh, we were able to, especially this year, we were able to take advantage of the bicycle market going down and us being able to apply more pressure on suppliers and, and component parts. And so we were able to realize a lot of savings. And also this year we didn't have tariffs to pay for. Uh, like shipping containers were like stupid. We, our average price one year was probably $18,000. Now it's come down to about $1,500 or $2,500 probably is like the new average and so like you realize all those savings and we built the company again, when there was tariffs, when there were those insane container prices, we were still keeping the standard of we have to run a profitable business. And that means we got to wear many hats. We got to think lean. We got to be smart. We got to find new ways to get the next customer rather than just pouring money into Google ads. Like we will do that in order to keep our margin expectation the same. So those things go away and in theory, you've just boosted your profitability. But we have this ceiling of like, all right, we can provide better value. So what we did is an example is like, we just added hydraulic brakes to our flagship model. And like, for reference, hydraulic brakes are like five times the price of our traditional mechanical disc brakes, right? But we could afford to do it without increasing the price. We were able to add in UL uh, UL 2849, 
to our bike as well without increasing the price. And so like, that's basically been our model is like, we're at nine 99 uh, for our flagship and we continue to make the product better, but keep the price the same because it's, it's a super simple relationship. So when the product is priced at a really good price, you can sell more units. And when you sell more units, you have more advocates out there helping you sell even more. So it's really a multiplier of that point. When you sell even more units, you get to go back to the suppliers and go through the supply chain and renegotiate, or you find leverage uh, within your business of efficiencies because you're at this bigger scale. And then you use that, and then it allows you to be a uh, more profitable. But then you reinvest those profits into the business, whether it's through product or growth, and then it all flows to the next thing again, because now you sell more units, you get better. And it's just the simple flywheel effect of electric's business model. And I think we continue to prove time and time again, that we're like very serious about it, where we could grab price uh, for sure. But like, we just came out with our off-road version of um, for our first time doing an off-road bike. And, you know, it's a good, like, 500 like the, to the X-Peak? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a good, like, 500 to to $1,000 less than its competitors. But our spec, our actual componentry on it is better. Like, there, if you just go component by component, you know, we're using a front suspension that costs four times the amount as their front suspensions they use on their bikes. Um, it's an RST Renegade. We pass higher safety standards and certifications that their bikes simply could not get tested to and pass. And we're doing it at a price significantly lower. Because we're doing it that way, we're probably going to sell more units in that category than anybody else. And because we can sell more units, we then can you know, continue to further invest into that product and make it even better, you know, when version two, three, four, five come out. Uh, I had a question about then, based on this, did you even weigh even going to private equity? I'd be interested to know why you were even going that route and what you were using that money for. I didn't even know what private equity was. So I was talking to a mentor friend and it was so clear. It was December... Or sorry, no, it was uh, March 2020, and COVID had just happened, and the attention on the e-bike had like blown up in popularity, and so we were already struggling with getting in stock. Our average wait time in 2019 was probably two months, and we saw that balloon to four months. So we were out of stock before it became cool to be out of stock. Yeah. Like that was, we were that in 2019. Then you add all on all the supply chain issues in 2020 and it got way more difficult. So we went through that while well, we were trying to like fight our way to like, no matter how much of the company's uh, profits we reinvested to buy more inventory, it was never enough. And we were never going to be able to get caught up and in stock because demand was just too big. It didn't matter if some of the wait times were getting as bad as six months for our bikes, but people were still just signing up for it. So we could tell Robbie and I were holding the company back because we didn't come into this with money. So we needed to be able to place bigger deposits, but also we had this self-awareness of like, we were 20, 
23 or 24 now at that time, I think. I think 24. And, like, we didn't have a CFO. We didn't have a COO. Uh, we were, like, running everything on QuickBooks. And it was basically Robbie, myself, and, like, 10 of our college friends. And that was the whole company. And it was, like, and we didn't have marketing or advertising set up. Like, we didn't have a Google Ads account yet. So, and we were sitting there, and we were on track to do, uh, like, almost $30 million or, yeah, yeah, almost $30 million in 2020. And it's, like, man. Could you imagine if we actually like had some additional people in the room like working on this with us, like people that have been there, done that? And so then we we ran a process, and that was actually pretty awesome because that was our first time that we realized that we're running the company so differently than everyone else because it was a profitable business. It had this extremely high growth rate. Um, and so we kind of got to be the bell of the ball. And then in turn, we got to select the best partner who in our mind was Bertram Capital, who have been rock stars for us. And then was that, um, you said you had a mentor. So was that through Bertram Capital or someone who kind of introduced you to even the idea of private equity? Yeah. So this was just, you know, someone uh, like in the neighborhood that I grew up in who like lived in this world before. And I was like, dude, what do I do? Like Robbie and I are like clearly holding the company back. We need more money in order to place larger deposits so we can eventually get in stock. Like, what do you do? And he's like, Oh, this is simple. Like go, go raise some money. And I was like, Oh, that's a thing. Like, what do you mean? And because my experience prior to that was I had gone to my local Wells Fargo and I tried to get a like small business loan and they wouldn't give us one um, because we weren't a minimum of three years old. Like no matter, you had to be at least three years old in order to even start an application. So, um, yeah, just super interesting. So we don't have a ton of time. So I want to look forward a little bit and ask you a little bit about sort of the future, where, where you're going. And I want to kind of, for me, what I'm most curious about is, is right, like the core of your success is, is getting the product right, it feels like, right? And, yeah. and you, you knocked it out of the park on the, on the very first one. Well, the second one, I guess we now know, right? Uh, the XP, you identified a, a really uh, important niche. But so like, how do you build on that, right? Like, how do you add new models? You've, you've added a number of models, maybe give us a, a rundown on, on, on what you offer now. How have you, what, what's been the philosophy about adding new models and like keeping that focus um, and, and making sure that you're not sort of like, you know, getting distracted, getting pulled into areas where, you know, your approach isn't, isn't going to win. Yeah. Great, great conversation to have. So we sold, let's call it our first hundred thousand, hundred and fifty thousand, I don't know how many bikes we sell. We're this month we're gonna hit our four hundred thousandth e-bike and we're a company that's not even five years old and a lion's share of it has come just in these last two years. Um and so high volume, um we have the number one selling uh e-bike model in the United States, which is the electric XP. Um a cool thing is that it's the third best selling EV in the United States, only behind the model three and the model Y from Tesla. Um, I would love to get to the number two or number one spot. But then we came out, the very first new design we did was the XP Lite. And that was intentional because I wanted to show the industry that I am very passionate about more butts on bikes. And I am willing to cannibalize and compete with myself in order to do that. So that bike came out 
for a 20% less price than what our uh, XP was selling at. So it was at $7.99. And there was no reason to do that. No pressure on the industry. Nobody had showed up to my doorstep to apply pressure to come out with a more affordable bike. That was just me feeling like, you know, there is some consumers that I'm not reaching because I'm at $9.99. So I got to figure out how I can save costs, get it down to $7.99. Because there's a lot of crummy e-bikes you can get in that $5.99 to $7.99 price. And those products, I think, are a huge risk to the industry because if they if they get it and they have a bad experience, whether it's the quality of the service they get or just this componentry that they put on the product, that person may be out on e-bikes for the rest of their life. And so I was like, all right, I got to figure out a way. So the first product we did was XP Lite, which was great. Then it's followed up by a more premium version. And then we've now done our trike. We have the number one selling um, electric trike in the in the industry, but it's also the number one selling adult tricycle just period in the industry. So it, even if you factor in mechanical trikes, ours outsell uh, the number one selling models in the, that respect as well. So our electric trike, uh, that was really easy to create because customers just told us they really wanted one and you get enough customers telling you, then you're like, all right, there's something there. So we did that. Then we did our cargo bike uh, right after that which uh, was also that kind of played more to the purpose of electric is like, I, I really do want to change the way people move and I need to come out with solutions that are more tailored to that. So being able to take, you know, a couple of your kids to school or do groceries, you know, that thing has over a hundred mile range. Um, but again, we brought it out at a price point that had never been thought possible and, um, with a spec that is also, you know, more comparable to price or e-bikes that are about three times the price of it. So um, that's also probably the number one selling cargo e-bike model in the United States. And uh, now we just came out with our off-road, but we have such scale right now that we can go into virtually any category and, um, you know, bring our, our unit economics purchasing power and use a lot of the shared componentry and then, you know, make upgrades in these other key areas. So like the X peak, you know, uses a lot of the same componentry as a 3.0. Um, but because we have that, it allows us to make a further investment so we can get an RST renegade fork on it. And that fork, you know, retails from RST at $400, but it's on a $1299 e-bike. So it's just like one of those components alone is makes up that much of it. Like it, it's, it's insane what we're now able to do. And for the first, I don't know, before we sold the, the trike, I think we had something like 250,000 units sold. That was once we did the trike and the cargo bike, that was really us saying, all right, we're going to go into these other categories. And, um, the reason why we didn't do it sooner was we were just too busy. There was way too much demand. We were trying to build a business, set up the foundation and the structure, get a product development team and like make sure it was the right one. And we really took our time with it. Um, but now that we have the structure in place, it's allowing us to come out with a lot new models. And I think it, it to me, 
uh, when we think of 2023, you know, electric will essentially sell one out of five e-bikes in the United States. We're, we're from electric. Uh, so 20% market share. And this is a company that up until two weeks ago only had 20 inch tire bikes, right. And was only operating in this one part of the, of the industry. And we had that much penetration and it's like, now that I've dipped my toe in this larger wheel size, I'm very bullish on our ability to capture even more market share because it's just the rest recipe is super simple for us. We have our ceiling and floor for the um, profitability and we know we can purchase more units and sell more units than anyone else. And we just, whatever the savings are, we pass on to the customer and I am willing to bet money. The customer is going to, you know, pay you, you know, dividends long-term because you were able to get them in at such an affordable price. Roughly half of all bike sales still to this day at this scale, we are the uh, reason is due to referral friends and family. I saw it out riding, you know, so for 50% of our sales, just coming from essentially free marketing, it, it's everything. Um, so yeah, we, we know uh, the recipe and it, and it works for us and we are going to continue to double down on it because when I think of the product innovation that we have coming over the next 18 months, it's whatever electric has done, but on like total steroids, like we are going to continue to do partnerships with brands like RST, where it's like, how on God's green earth is electric getting a front fork that is only seen on bikes that are three or $4,000 on a $1,300 e-bike, right? So I'm doing that to the ultra degree of all product launches in 2024 and 2025. Okay. So everything, it sounds like basically you guys are crushing it. You have all these new areas. So what is, what is the thing that you think of that could derail it? Like from what your success is now, is it introducing too many different models too quickly? Like when you think of, and I don't know if you are thinking this, like, how this could all go wrong. This is such <laughs> a classic, this is such well. a classic Kirsten Corset question. Like, yeah, everything's going <laughs> great, but like something's keeping you up at night. What is it? But, but no, but, but how do you, how do you prevent what has happened to so many other companies? You've managed to do it so far by doing a very specific way you've operated your business, but now it's, you're at this whole new era, right? With all these new um, model lines. So how do you, in your head, do you have a limit like to the number of models or something else that you're just aware of in the back of your head so that you stay on this course of success? Yeah, we have a very simple moral compass within the organization and we don't really go away from it. So I could have easily launched five different models um, just in quarter four this year. Like I, I have the resources. I could have done something like that, but we're very mindful of the pace or growth rate that we, that we try to go after and we try to make really responsible decisions. And we've just never compromised on that. We don't go after shiny objects. There's this huge appetizing thing of, Oh, let's go after Europe and let's start selling e-bikes there because there's so much market potential. But it's also like, well, that could be a little distracting to what we're doing right now. We don't have the infrastructure to do that. We don't have the team to do that right now. One day we will, and we can't wait for it, but we're not going to do it right now because we're not structurally built for that 
at this time. And so we have always been super careful and mindful of where we invest our time and our company resources. So there's not really much that keeps me up to date. Like the reality is, is we are now in a market where about 8% of all the bicycles sold in the U.S. are electric. And we just saw Germany cross over that 50% penetration rate. The Netherlands is over 60%. Europe as a whole is sitting at almost 40%. And so you think to yourself, even if we just get on par to where Europe is, you know, we got a 5 axis, and that's going to take at least, you know, a decade or so of really strong growth for us to even get there. But by the time we get to 40%, 40 to 50%, then Europe may show us, hey, the actual penetration rate is closer to 80% of all bicycles sold are electric. So like there, we continue to see strong growth in other markets. Therefore, it's very obvious that this market's going to continue to have strong growth. People ask if I'm worried about regulation or anything like that. And I love regulation. I think there should be way more regulation because I view it as a a, a moat for our company because we can afford to bring our products to UL and do all those testing. Um, and also it's kind of a, a protection for the industry itself because when there's less injuries or, or situations that happen, uh, it will help the overall industry. So I, I'm an advocate. I like the three class system regulation of class one, two, and three for e-bikes, uh, which limits how fast it can go and, uh, you know, and in what ways. Um, but UL, I love. I'm personally wanting us to adopt some of the regulation that exists in Europe because I just did this off-road bike, for example, and it's very self-regulated here in the U.S. But over in Europe, the moment you advertise something with uh, any form of off-roading, uh, you have to pass this uh, ISO 4210-10 EMTB safety standard, right? The moment, if you show it on gravel, you have to pass that. Well, here in the US, that's not a requirement. And it was like, well, if we want to stand out, we should be the ones passing the highest safety standard. And in order to do that, you have to get essentially a $400 fork. Like you can design your frame, but for your suspension to meet that standard, like it, it's there. So I really like the uh, regulation that's coming. So I don't know. I sleep well at night. Uh, so nothing's <laughs> keeping me up quite yet. All right. Well, we, yeah, we would love to, to keep this going. This has been so fascinating. I think especially after, you know, we've been doing this show for what, six, seven years, something like that now. And, yeah. and we've seen, we've seen a lot happen and I've, I, you know, and a lot of it has in this mobility tech space has, has not turned out as great as as a lot of people hoped and and it's so cool i think your story uh it just provides a really awesome like uh evidence that you know there's not just one way to do this there's lots of ways to do this and um and i i'd be interesting to see if uh, we see more more companies in the space sort of following your example going forward yes hopefully it's a it's a fun <laughs> space and i freaking love it so you know i i think Long term, there's plenty of room for a lot of winners. I think in the short term, unfortunately, there's going to be some losers that pop, drop out of the space. But the tailwinds, the macro trends of this space remain super exciting, and I'm thrilled to be in it. Cool. Um, Levi, thanks so much for joining us uh, today. And thanks to our listeners to tuning in to another episode of the Atonicast. Sweet. Thank you, guys. <laughs>